Well, turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 9. This is our final message in uh, Romans 9. We're going to be kind of coming out of the tunnels now as we've worked this metaphor of Romans 8 being the a skyscraper of fantastic truth and profound promises for the believer. Romans 9 have been the tunnels underneath the skyscraper that uh, has held this up, that uh, supports this big building. And honestly, just uh, as we begin, I've been thrilled by your responses of worship and humility and awe over God and his uh, foreknowledge and his election. And so the different comments that I've gotten from you, the conversations that I've had with many of you and emails that I've received from you and in light of these message uh, have been thrilling to me because this is what election is supposed to do for believers. It is supposed to warm us. It is supposed to send us to our knees in humility and in appreciation to God for what he has done on our behalf. And so when that is accomplished, when that is the response that, uh, that I hear from you, I know that God is doing his work in, uh, in your heart. And that is, that, that's, that's why I do what I do uh, when I open up uh, God's word and we look at topics like this. Tonight, however, is going to mark a major shift in focus. We're going to shift now really from foreknowledge or election and, and God's work in salvation before the foundations of the world to faith. And so maybe you saw the little blurb, the promo email today, but we're going to be like tourists tonight looking through those gray binocular contraptions at a national park. You all know what those, you ever experienced those? You know, at those points of interest, and you go and you got to put the quarter in, and you got you know about ninety seconds to get all you know, to look through those things and and uh, focus on on you know a point of interest out there. And several you know usually there's many mountain peaks or other things. Sometimes you even see them in the city, and you're looking at buildings or other pieces of architecture. But tonight we're gonna we're gonna shift the focus from one mountain to another mountain. You don't have to insert any quarters. I don't, you didn't, if you brought some, you don't have to. You can keep looking for free. The time's not going to run, run out. It's not 90 seconds, maybe 90 minutes, but we're going to shift our focus. So let's focus here on God's Word. Look at Romans 9. I'm going to read verses 30 to 33, the focus of the message tonight. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Any of you take a vacation this summer? Anybody go on a trip recently? Had a destination in mind? Maybe not a vacation, maybe it's a business trip. But you left town, you left the hill country or whatnot, but you had a destination in mind. Maybe it was the mountains of Colorado. And as you have a destination in mind, there are many wrong ways to go about getting to your destination, aren't there? One is you could not 
even go. You could not get in the car. You could stay in the house and, uh, and not go on the trip that was planned. That would be a wrong way to get to the destination, is to do nothing about it. Well, duh. But that would be a wrong way to get there, wouldn't it? Some also, maybe you're more like me, and if you have a destination or a vacation in place, the destination is the goal, and I'm going to go as quickly, as fastly, with no breaks uh, in between, no bathroom breaks, no food breaks, but i got a mission, there's a point ahead, and I am getting there. You know, We are not stopping, and I miss all the scenery along the way or maybe you're like my wife and you like to enjoy the scenery it's about the journey not so much as about the destination but if you go too far that way you might just enjoy this the scenery get distracted by it and then the allotted time that you had for that vacation has passed by if you stop at every place and every point of interest along the way but there's wrong ways to go about getting to the destination, or maybe less than helpful ways in the case of a vacation. But really, such is the case with our passage tonight. Not in regards to vacation, but the destination here is ultimately salvation. The destination is righteousness, of being right with God, of what is known as being justified, of being in right standing. With God, that declaration of righteousness that we've talked about uh, in many sermons in our journey through the book of Romans, haven't we? All the way back, Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, all throughout we've come to this word, this idea of righteousness. And so in the passage here, we saw, I just read, and I'm going to flesh out for you, two wrong ways to salvation and one right way. In the two wrong ways, there's one Gentile wrong way and one Jewish wrong way as evidenced in the in the past through the Old Testament and then the right way is for both Jews and Gentiles and so in verse 30 we really begin with a summary statement that picks up on these two wrong ways and one right way there's a summary statement here when he says what shall we say then and this connects us to the previous verses the whole line of thinking that we've seen all throughout Romans chapter 9 Really, in essence, what he's saying is, so then, how do we proceed with the understanding of God's absolute freedom and choice? Now that we know this, now that we know that God has chosen beforehand, before the foundations of the world, he's chosen a remnant of both Jews and Gentiles, we've had this glimpse into God's work, how then do we proceed with that understanding? You may remember, and really as I've prefaced the previous weeks, as I've said, there's application here, but one of the main applications is to just allow these verses to shape our thinking, to form our understanding of who God is, how he saves people, and what he was doing long before we were ever on the scene of this earth. And so how do we reconcile all that we've learned about foreknowledge, all that we've learned about election, with faith? How do we reconcile these two things? And I find that to be an interesting word. I choose it very deliberately, the reconciling of man's responsibility or our faith with God's election. Spurgeon has, is quoted as saying this many times, as we don't need to reconcile friends. The idea of having to reconcile these two issues uh, uh, betrays a, a thought that there is some sort of... Uh, 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 
opposition between these two fundamental truths of our justification by faith and God's election of those whom he loves. But these two things are friends. You don't need to reconcile friends, right? If my wife and I are getting along, do we need to be reconciled? No. It's not until we are at odds with one another. And so this is the, this is the uh, preemptive statement. This is the question here. This is the summary that uh, is beginning in verse 30 here. What shall we say then? How do we proceed with this understanding? How do we proceed with these two mountains in the range? How do they fit in the same range? Well, first he's going to give us the two wrong ways, and then we'll look at finally the right way here as we answer this question. How do these two things reconcile? Well, the first wrong way is, is then there in the second half of verse 30. The wrong way to attain righteousness is to not pursue it at all. Right? To not pursue it at all. So with this, really what Paul's saying here is now the Gentiles, they... Uh, for ages, by and large, Gentiles did not pursue righteousness at all. Right? Isn't that what he says here? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they didn't, they didn't go after it. And so, well, why didn't they is a question. Why? Well, ultimately we know from the previous verses it's because they weren't a part of the remnant. God didn't choose them. They didn't have faith. They weren't, they, their eyes were not opened to these things. And so why did they not pursue? Well, let's Look at the idea of pursuit here first. To pursue something really is a word that's used of hunting, right? You have a goal. You have a quarry in mind that you are after. There's a destination if we're on a journey. You're earnestly seeking a goal. And Gentiles, for ages, up until this point before Christ, by and large, they did not even pursue righteousness at all. Gentiles had no desire to pursue salvation. They had no desire to be right with God. They didn't care, and they couldn't care. They had no motivation to pursue righteousness. And I think this is, this is very true for many people that we know, isn't it? You may know these people, those that have zero interest in spiritual things, right? Maybe it's the neighbor that you've tried to have multiple com uh, spiritual conversations and to lead into things of faith, and they've, I don't want to talk, I don't, I don't go there, I don't have any interest, I don't have any concept. Maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a, a child of yours, but they just have zero interest in the things of God, have zero interest in doing what's right, of pleasing God. They have no concern with going to hell, may not even believe that it exists. But these whole concepts of God and of reward and consequence, afterlife, doing right, uh, doing what's wrong, especially in a spiritual sense, it's not even on their radar. That's something that's of no interest. There's zero pursuit and zero desire, zero interest. So when you don't pursue anything, can you find what you're looking for? No. The result, then, if you, there's no pursuit, you find nothing. Such is the case with the Gentiles. For ages before Christ, by and large, they didn't pursue righteousness. They had their own law, they had their own idea, their own pagan rituals and things like that. But when it came to God Almighty, Yahweh, 
had no interest, no desire, no pursuit at all. The second wrong way, then, is the, really the complete opposite and is characteristic of the Jewish people. Look at verse 31 here, the contrast. But Israel, the Jewish people, on the flip side, the Jews were overly concerned with righteousness. The Gentiles had no concern at all. The Jewish people were overly concerned with righteousness and earning God's favor, weren't they? For ages... Up until the point of Christ and even after, to this day, by and large, Israel pursued righteousness through the law by their works. They sought to earn God's favor by their own deeds. They were earnestly seeking. Gentiles were not seeking at all. Jewish people were earnestly seeking, but again, in the wrong way. It's as though they were using the wrong hunting methods. They were sitting in a tree stand waiting for doves. Yeah. They were employing the wrong methods. They were stalking deer in the desert. They were on the hunts. They were pursuing but using the wrong methods. So it's like you're shopping at the wrong store. You need groceries, but you're going to JCPenney and passing by HEB on the way to get there. In pursuit of these of groceries, doing it the wrong way, the wrong place, the way that God has never said to be done. So for ages, to the point of Christ, by and large, Israel pursued righteousness through the law by their works. That's what he means here. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And then in verse 33, here, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28. He's saying this is till that it was going to happen. This, is, this has been true all along in the Old Testament. This is, was true then, and it is true now. And then he goes on to explain really two things that happen when we pursue righteousness by works of the law. When we seek to earn God's favor by keeping the law, by keeping the Old Testament, by keeping all the... The, the rules and regulations and commandments of the Old Testament, when we try to earn God's favor by doing these things with perfection, really two things will result. Either you're going to stumble. Did you notice this? They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so you're either going to stumble over the stone. And who's the stone? It's Jesus, right? The stone that in Daniel 4 is said to will rise up one day and crush all the kingdoms, right? Daniel 4, towards the end. But here, the Jewish people, the Israelites who are pursuing righteousness by the law, in doing that, it's as though they were stumbling right over Jesus. They were charging ahead with the, with the right goal in mind, but going about it at the wrong way and missing the Messiah along the way. It's as though you're running and you see the finish line up ahead and you're not watching where you're going and here's this big stone that comes out in front of you. You fall flat on your face in a mouthful of dirt. They missed the stone. They were focused on the law and missed the Messiah all the way through. Ultimately, they missed the, really, when Jesus came on the scene then, they stumbled. They mis misunderstood the reason for his first coming. 
They were looking for a conquering king, right? And missed the suffering servant. They were looking for that conquering king and missed the, the, the suffering servant. They misunderstood the purpose of the law, what it was there for. This is an argument that Paul's already made in Romans here, but they misunderstood why the law was even in place. It was never meant to save. It was meant to keep them and to protect them. It was meant to aggravate sin in us so that we might recognize our need for a Savior. And this was a tragic mistake for them, wasn't it? Tragic, tragic stumbling. This wasn't just a little stumble with a boo-boo. This was a bad, bad face plant pursuing righteousness pursuing God's favor by works of the law causes you to stumble Paul uses this also he talks about it in first Corinthians chapter 1 he says for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and, and 23. Here the Jews have stumbled right over it. And trying to work the law, they missed it altogether. And they've stumbled badly. And not only this, but they're also offended by the rock. They're offended by him. Laying Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. As I said, this is a quote from Isaiah 28. Peter also uses it in 1 Peter 2.8. He brings out this same illustration, this same stone. This to those who are unbelieving, to those particularly here the Jews pursuing righteousness by works of the law. It's a stumbling block, but for those who believe, he's the chief cornerstone, right? The cornerstone which the whole building is built up in. The cornerstone that, that has laid the, the, uh, the measurements and the level, the plumb line for the rest of the building. The stone that was set perfectly that the rest of the house is built up in. That's what it is. And so it's the same stone for those who believe the standard of living. And for those who disbelieve, those who are pursuing a salvation in the wrong ways, it's a stumbling same rock sitting on the ground can be used to build a house or can be used to stub your toe on, right? Same rock, same Christ. This rock, they're also, as I said, they're offended by him. Unbelievers are offended by the rock. To believers, it's the rock of salvation, right? As the psalmist says, but this, is the, this is the reality. When you're steeped in the law and you're seeking perfection, then the concepts of grace and mercy are offensive to you, aren't they? When you've set this standard and you're trying to work at the law and you're trying to earn it and, and you're achieving it and you're striving after perfection in the law, then when Jesus comes on the scene or the true message of the Bible is being preached of grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who can't attain the law, then it's those who are steeped in it. This is an offensive message. Israel was offended by Jesus in his message that he's coming, both because he's preaching grace, but he's also offering it to Gentiles, offensive to the Israelites. That's why they rejected him. It's really, it was too simple in their minds. It took all the responsibility, all the glory, all the boasting out of their own hands because it nullified their accomplishments. It, it, it rendered null and void their perfect streak of attending temple in the, in the synagogue. All the, all the 
good things, all their their uh, their their you know streak of of uh, perfecting the law and the things that they had done that was right, it rendered it null and void. So they're offended by the rock. They're offended by Jesus. They're offended by the message of grace and mercy to undeserving sinners, both Jew and Gentile. And isn't this the same for many people that we know? Just like we know the people who are spiritually disinterested, don't we also know some legalists, both under the banner of Christians and just under the banner of maybe Americans, right? Patriots, or anything else. But we know these, the legalists here, they're concerned with their outward appearance, they're demanding perfection, confusing the standards of Emily Post with the standards of Jesus. There's anybody else? The person that gets offended by the message of grace and mercy, and they reject both the messenger, believers, and the Messiah. Right? You, I think you maybe know the people. They miss these people. They misunderstand the gospel. They misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstand the commands, the purpose of the law, the reason why we obey. We don't obey the law. We don't seek to obey Christ because we're trying to earn his favor. But because he's declared us righteous already, we now get to live a holy and righteous life. We don't do it so that we can, so that we can earn God's favor. Both of these are the wrong ways to salvation. To not, a, not pursue it at all and to pursue it in the wrong way. To pursue it using the wrong methods. But there's one right way. There's one right way that weaves its way throughout this. There's one right way to salvation. There's one right way to be in God's favor. To be in right standing with him. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the good news, is that there is a right way to pursue righteousness. God does his work in eternity past, and then he enables his beloved to have faith. To both see the folly of the wrong ways, and then to see Christ. The right way is righteousness by faith, right? Back to verse 30. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they attained righteousness of their own doing, of their own works, no, the righteousness which is by faith. The righteousness which is by faith. Same is true for the Jewish people, those who would believe. But God is doing this now largely in Gentiles. The ones who had no motivation, the ones who had no desire, the ones who were not pursuing it. Now we're seeing more and more Gentiles coming to faith across the nations. Non-Jewish people. And so that's the message tonight. That's the core of a passage like this, that we need to repent and believe in Christ. Do you see your sin? Were you once concerned, unconcerned rather, about the things of God, but you find yourself concerned? Then pursue Christ. Have you found yourself once striving, but always failing? Then lay down your works and take up Christ message tonight is turn to Christ. Be declared right with God. Repent of sin. Believe on Jesus. Salvation has always been by faith. Faith in Christ. Not faith in your own works. Not faith in yourself. 
for faith in Christ and what he accomplished and what Christ did on behalf of sinful people, on behalf of ones who were once his enemy, on behalf of ones who come from a corrupt lump of clay, the ones who had more in common with Pharaoh but God had mercy on them that they might be like Moses. Salvation has always been by faith, always. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This isn't something new for this age. This isn't something new for the church. Faith is God's means to activate what he already declared beforehand. And ultimately here in the scope of Romans 9 is that faith is another piece in God's sovereign control. And even faith is another piece in God's sovereign control. It's not as if God has sovereignty over election. Yeah, we recognize that he has his choice, but, the, but on the flip side is that man is sovereign over his faith and his choice. No, the reality is that God is sovereign over both. Not to the extent that it eliminates our human responsibility to repent and believe, but in God's economy, in God's control, in his providential working, over this earth, he is both sovereign over whom he chooses and whom will exercise faith. Because without his choosing of us, we would never exercise faith. Without we, we were completely unable. We were completely dead in our sin. And yet now we, as believers, as those who've experienced his mercy and his compassion, as has been talked about, recognize their sin, can recognize their need for the Savior, put their faith completely in the finished work of Christ. Verse 33 ends with a final benefit of belief, right? The benefit to those who believe. Isn't this incredible here? And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Who is disappointed today? Anybody have an expectation that one unfulfilled today? Maybe in a big way, maybe in a small way. Maybe you didn't get for lunch what you wanted to have for lunch today. You had a hankering for a hamburger and your wife made you a ham sandwich. Maybe you were hoping that your t football team won this weekend, and they didn't. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. Packers are winning all the time. so Next week, I might eat my words. We'll not be disappointed. And the promise here is not, the, the statement here is not that we will never be disappointed in this life again. That's, that's really a, uh, that's, that's word of faith. That's prosperity teaching that. You won't have any disappointments here in this life. But what it is saying is that you can have ultimate satisfaction and blessing when that blessing or that satisfaction is found in Christ. When it's found in Christ, there is, when our, our satisfaction is so wrapped up in, in Christ and in his will and in his doings, then there is no disappointment. 
When we believe the promise of Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. When our satisfaction and our hope rests in that, that God has caused all things to work together for good, for our benefit, then that's where our satisfaction is. Disappointment happens when our expectations are not met, right? You know, we have expectations of our spouse, we have expectations of our children, of our co-workers, of our neighbors, of our government, of, you know, we have expectations of everybody. And we also have expectations of God. And some of their expectations are more man-centered in what we want God to do. I expect God to give me what I want. Versus, I want what God has for me. So therefore, when we love, we submit, we trust God, his ways, then ultimately we can be satisfied in all things, in both pain and in pleasure. Right? When our satisfaction is wrapped up in the glory of God, that he gets the glory in all that we do, we trust him, we know that he is working out all things, both things that are deeply hurtful to us, that, that cause great grief and pain. Then there can be satisfaction. And there is no disappointment. But this is only for those with faith, right? All others, all without faith, all those pursuing it the wrong way, not pursuing it all or at works of the law, will be eternally disappointed. Be eternally disappointed. But the benefit of belief is blessing, right? Is living a life of satisfaction knowing that nothing compares to the work of God in my life. Nothing usurps him. No, no, there are many great temporary things that happen in my life. But compared to the glory of God being at work in my life, of his work in me, of his salvation of me, of his perseverance of me, of the hope of glory that I have waiting, reserved in heaven for me, that is where my satisfaction lies. That is what my hope is fixed to on the grace that will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. With that hope in mind, with that satisfaction on the horizon, of that, uh, of that assurance that we have in this life, how can we be disappointed? How can we be disappointed in an eternal sense? All the temporary things suddenly lose their sting. They suddenly lose some of the deep pain when they're weighed in the scales of the eternal things versus the temporary things, right? We keep This is a common thread all throughout Romans of the great benefit, the hope that we have and the greatness of glory far outweighs the pain, the temporary pain that we may have in this life causing disappointment. But he who believes in him, in Christ, will not be disappointed. What a great benefit. What a great promise. So how do we conclude here with Romans 9? We've got to go back to where we started just as we bring this to a close here. As we think about the argument of Romans 9, how does this little passage fit here? 
the whole message has been the, the, where the argument started way back at the beginning of this chapter was really, well, what about Israel, right? If you've been with us the last several weeks, the last four or five times, the, the question was, well, what about Israel? It appears as though God's word has failed, that God's promise has failed because he made all these covenants with Israel. Now, uh, it, it, the majority of them have rejected Jesus, are not putting their faith in Christ. Gentiles are. Now, Paul, you're writing this book of Romans to us, and you're making these great claims and telling us about these great promises to those who are justified by faith, to those who believe in Christ. But it appears as though the, your first attempt failed. So can we trust you on this second attempt? Time, time again, verse after verse in Romans 9, has really been to prove that God's word has not failed. Right? Verse 6. Romans 9, verse 6. God's word hasn't failed. And so we can sum up Romans 9 here really in, in the answer to this question. Well, what about promises to Israel? Can God be counted on? That objection, that protest here. And as we've seen thus far, God's word has not failed because God chooses whom will believe before the foundation of the world, choosing only a remnant in both Jew and Gentile, right? That's how we would sum up the first 29 verses of this, of this chapter. God's word hasn't failed because God, God chooses a remnant of both Jews and Gentiles before the foundation of the world. That has been set out. His promises have not failed. His plan is going exactly according to schedule in all things. And secondly, as we've seen from these few verses tonight, is that God's word has not failed because justification has always been by faith. An example of Abraham, we saw in Romans chapter 4, and now here in both Jew and Gentile, righteousness comes by faith faith. We are justified. We are declared righteous with God by faith in Christ. His word has not failed. This has always been the case. Some don't believe and they get what is coming to them. But to those to whom God has mercy and compassion towards, they have this benefit of satisfaction for eternity. pray as we close. Father in heaven, what a great way, what a great reminder as you bring us back to the joy of faith. God, we, we confess we've been playing around in the tunnels. We've been uh, in uh, looking at what you've done on our behalf before the foundation of the world and You've now brought us back to something real time. You've brought us out of history and into the present day. And the faith that we can have. The faith that you give, that you and your mercy and compassion give to those whom you love. So we thank you for that, God. Thank you for the gift of faith. Let's pray for those that may be even here tonight that don't believe in you, that are apart from you. Maybe some have come in and are un, have been uninterested. Maybe others have been pursuing it by works of the law, trying to earn your favor by doing what's right. 
pray that you would strip those things away and they would come to Christ in repentance and faith. God, thank you for this great reminder. We look forward to what lies ahead as we look at the role that faith plays. Help us to see how they are working together. How your work in eternity and our faith in real time go hand in hand. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.